water holds the power of life and death. Without it, you cannot survive. Too much of it destroys. Early in the human story, water cleansed the earth of evil and wickedness. Only Noah and his family remained dry. Years later, an infant Moses placed in a basket is safe from death in the Nile River. Moses remains dry. And again, Moses leads his people across dry land. Just before the Red Sea crashes over Pharaoh and his armies. In this water, we find death. Our separation from God. Then Jesus comes. He does not avoid the water. He is immersed in it with us, baptized with humanity. He emerges with a new life, a new self, a new identity, and invites us to do the same. Water holds the power of life and death. Today, we choose life. This morning, we're going to be exploring some church history, a church tradition that, that predates the church itself. We're going to be looking at the sacrament of baptism. There are lots of questions that surround baptism. What does it do? What does it mean to be baptized? As I said, this sacrament predates Christ's resurrection. It, it predates Christ's death. We see it in John the Baptist. But before we get into that and we get into him, I first want to take a look at, at how the church has defined and described baptism throughout history. We see in scripture that that baptism is a symbol of unity. Paul explains this exact thing in uh, his letter to the church in Ephesus. When he tells them, you are one body and one spirit, just as God also called you into one hope. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. This is what we as the church believe about baptism. It doesn't matter what denomination you go to. We all agree that there is one baptism in Jesus. Beyond that, we can begin to debate and discuss the, the function and the meaning behind that baptism. The Roman Catholic Church describes baptism as an instrumental cause of justification. Justification being that which makes us just and right before God, that cleansing that takes place at salvation. An instrumental cause, then, is what brings it about, uh, the tools used to bring about that justification. Much like a, a hammer or a drill is a tool that is used to build a house. The house does not form without the without the tools that make it so. The same is said about baptism, but this, this concept of, of the instrumental cause of justification, it, 
It was not viewed favorably by the reformers and the Protestants of their time, and they, they argued with the Roman Catholic Church. They argued that justification is not something that comes through works, but it is, it is done through faith in Jesus Christ alone. No actions need to be performed. Thus, if baptism yields justification, then it is a ritual act when done without repentance. It, it is a work that brings salvation. And this is contrary to what Scripture tells us. And so in response to this, the Roman Catholic Church clarified their position, and they described that, that in baptism, the recipient must work with God's grace. Meaning that, that if a person undergoes baptism, but their heart is not right before God, then there is no justification that takes place if they are working against God. Likewise, if, if someone is baptized and then refuses to cooperate with God's Spirit, then that justification or that salvation could then be lost. And this, this helped rectify some of the opposition, but it didn't quite line up with the evidence that we see in Scripture, particularly in Luke chapter 23. In Luke chapter 23, Luke describes for us Christ's crucifixion. He explains that Christ was crucified with two other men, two criminals, one on his right and one on his left. One of those criminals mocked him. He ridiculed Jesus. But the second rebuked the first, and he petitioned Jesus, asking him, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied to him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now that criminal died on that cross. He did not have an opportunity to come down and, and be baptized and then fulfill his punishment. No, he had no opportunity to be baptized. Yet Jesus' declaration to him describes justification and salvation as we know it. If this man who did not undergo baptism could receive that justification and salvation, then baptism itself cannot be a requirement for that justification. So what's the point? Why do we do this? What does baptism really do? If it doesn't justify us, if it doesn't give us salvation, as we see with that thief, then it can't be required for salvation. So what's the point? What's the purpose or the significance of baptism? For that, we're going to go back to John the Baptist. As we look in Scripture, we see really two different forms of baptism. We see the baptism of John, and we see the baptism of Jesus. Now, these two forms of baptism, they are quite similar, and they both have their own significance, but they are not the same baptism. We, we see John, John was the last prophet in the Old Testament. Now you may say, wait a minute, I've read a little bit of the Bible, and I know that he appears at the beginning of the New Testament, so how can you say that he is a prophet in the Old Testament? We use these terms to, to group these books of the Bible, but these terms Old Testament and New Testament, they refer to the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The old covenant being that that God made with Abraham, where he told them, 
that you and your descendants, I will be your God and you will be my people. And I will bless the world through you. That is the old covenant. But Jesus came and made a new covenant where if you believe in him, if you trust in him, then you will have eternal life. Now, John the Baptist, while, we, while he's included in those books that we call the New Testament, his ministry took place prior to the establishment of that new covenant with Jesus. And so he is an Old Testament prophet. And as we read in Scripture, it said that, that John came preaching in the power of the Holy Spirit with a message, repent, because the kingdom of heaven is near. And the result of that, that we see in Matthew's gospel, it says, then people from Jerusalem, all Judea and all the vicinity of the Jordan were going out to him and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. This is... This is what we know John the Baptist to do. I mean, he baptizes people. It's in the name. But many times we take that for granted, that that's what he did. And we fail to realize that what John was doing in baptizing people was very scandalous. Because the, the Israelite people, they had their covenant with God. that They had these rules and, and rituals and laws that were laid out for them. God had, had detailed for them how to, to go from being unclean to clean. The purification that needed to take place. He even included rules and instructions for if foreigners or, or Gentiles wanted to be added to that covenant. And God gave them a sign of this covenant in circumcision. Jewish boys, when they became of age, they were required to be circumcised. This was the same sign that if, if a foreigner or a Gentile were, were added into this, they would also have to go, undergo that circumcision regardless of their age. But the Gentiles, they had an additional requirement, additional cleansing that needed to take place. And that is referred to as the proselyte baptism. Anyone who came out of that covenant into that covenant was considered a proselyte, and they had to be baptized or cleansed. This was not for the Jewish people. They were God's chosen people, and they were considered clean in that regard. This proselyte baptism or, or cleansing, it was just for the Gentiles. And that was the scandal of John's baptism. Because John wasn't only baptizing the Gentiles. John, John called for all to be baptized, indicating that all people, including the Jews, were unclean. And this is precisely why John opposed Jesus when Jesus came to be baptized. John told him, I need to be baptized by you, and yet you come to me? And Jesus answered him, allow it for now, because this is the way for us to fulfill all righteousness. You see, Jesus was sinless. Therefore, he was not unclean. He was as clean as you could be and had no need to be cleansed. But as the Messiah, it wasn't enough that for Jesus to just come and die. No, Jesus first had to fulfill the law. He had to submit himself to the entirety of God's law. And that included the commandment of God's prophets to be baptized. 
Now, this baptism that, that John did is not the same baptism that Jesus later commands. And we see that in Acts chapter 19 when Paul encounters some of John's former disciples. And he talks to them about whose name were you baptized in? And they said, we've been baptized in the name of John. He said, whoa, let's fix that because there's someone greater than John. And he baptized them in the name of Jesus. These two baptisms are different, but what is the difference between the two? Interestingly enough, Jesus never commanded baptism prior to his crucifixion. After his crucifixion, after he had risen from the dead and gathered his disciples together, he spoke to them and he told them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. This command for baptism, it came after everything else. It came after Jesus had been given all authority. It came after he had fulfilled the law. It came after he had established the new covenant. All of this took place after and Jesus was establishing the sign of the new covenant. Baptism in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, as a pastor, I get asked a lot of theological questions, and I welcome them. Please, if you have questions, I want to help you. I want to share with you the knowledge that I have. But one of the questions that people often ask are, is, is baptism required in order to be a Christian? And whenever I get this question, the answer is always the same. Yes and no. Because as we, as we saw with the thief, uh, baptism is not a requirement for salvation. Salvation comes through faith in Jesus Christ alone. There are no works, no other requirements, no external acts. Faith and trust in Jesus is all that is required for justification and salvation. However, baptism is a command from Jesus. If you want to be a follower of Jesus, then you have to follow his commands even in following his command to be baptized. Therefore, Christians, if they're going to follow Jesus, they must follow his command, and Christians must be baptized because that baptism is a sign of the new covenant. This whole talk of, of covenants, it, it harkens back to the Old Testament. We see a lot of covenants taking place back there. A covenant is an agreement. It is a, a relational contract between two or more individuals. These covenants or these contracts, they lay out the terms. This is what I'm going to do. This is what you're going to do. This is the expectation here and there. And they set a sign for that agreement. We see that with Noah. After the flood, after Noah and his family were saved, God made a covenant with Noah and all of creation, telling them, I have placed my bow in the clouds, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I form clouds over the earth and the bow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all the living creatures. 
Water will never again become a flood to destroy every creature. We see likewise when God made a covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 17. This is my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you, which you are to keep. Every one of your males must be circumcised. You must circumcise the flesh of your foreskin and serve as a sign of the covenant between me and you. This circumcision was the sign of God's covenant with Abraham and his descendants, the Israelite people. It was a reminder of the promises that were made and the trustworthiness of the one that made them. Baptism is the new sign. Baptism is the new circumcision, the sign of the covenant. This is what Paul describes in Colossians when he says, you were also circumcised in him with a circumcision not done with hands. By putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ, when you were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Baptism is the new sign that conveys God's promises to those following him. I've performed a number of wedding ceremonies. And in those ceremonies, it is customary for the bride and the groom to exchange rings. For many people, this is just a tradition that my parents did it, my grandparents did it, and so we just continue to do it. But these rings serve a purpose. They are a reminder of the promises that were made and the benefits that come through that covenant. Every time a married man or woman looks at their hand or, or feels that band around their finger, it is a reminder of the day that they promised their life to another. And in difficult times, we can be reminded of that and, and stand firm upon that promise and that covenant that was made. Likewise, in difficult times, baptism serves as that reminder. Not because it's some magical ritual, not because there's something special about this water, but because it is a sign it reminds us of God's promises. God's promise of a new life in Jesus that we are grafted into God's family, that we've been set apart. Because just like a marriage covenant is between that husband and that wife, God's promises are not for all people, but for the believers who trust in Him. Therefore, it is a reminder of God's promises to us as well as our commitment to Him. It is a sign for the past year, for the past year, I've been helping out in the church in New Salem. And that, that means that I would wake up early and I would drive down there and I would perform a, a worship gathering there before driving all the way back up here. It's about a 45-minute drive. And I got to know that, that stretch of road pretty well. I know that as I'm coming back from New Salem, um, I, I hit a road sign that, that says exit 110 Beulah one mile. And then when I get to exit 110, I get off on that and, and I start heading north and there will be another sign. And that sign says Beulah, 28 miles. Now, when I reach those signs, I know that I have not arrived at Beulah. 
In fact, if I continue down the road and I get to Beulah, there is a sign that says, welcome to Beulah, but that sign is not Beulah. Signs always point to something else. They may bear the name of Beulah, but those signs are not Beulah. Baptism is a sign that points to something else. But what is it a sign of? This is a, an important question that our early church fathers wrestled with to try to explain to all people. And they did so in, in a number of confessions, one of which is the Westminster Confession. And in that confession, they explain baptism, saying that baptism is a sacrament of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ, not only for the solemn admission of the party baptized into the visible church, but also to be unto him a sign and seal of the covenant of grace, of his engrafting into Christ, of regeneration, of remission of sin, of his giving up unto God through Jesus Christ to walk in the newness of life, which sacrament is by Christ's own appointment to be continued in his church until the end of the world. Now that's a whole lot of words. And it can get kind of confusing. So let's break it down just a little bit. Baptism is a sign of many things. Baptism is a sign of God's grace. It is a reminder, as I've said, that it's not by your works, it's not by what you have done, but by God's grace that we can partake in him. It is a sign of our engrafting, of our adoption, of our inclusion into the body and the family of Christ. It is a sign of our regeneration, of our being transformed into Christ's likeness. It is a sign of our remission of sin and our surrender to God. It points to the justification that has already taken place through faith in Christ and our commitment to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice to God. And it is a sign of Christ's sacrifice for us, his death and his resurrection as the firstborn of many brethren. Baptism, just like circumcision before it, is the sign of the covenant. It is an external act, a symbol that points to the transformation that has already taken place. Through baptism, we confirm our commitment to Christ, that we are reborn into his name, and that we are empowered by his blood and his spirit, sealed and protected by the Holy Spirit. We pledge our lives to him, we pledge ourselves to him, and we receive on us his seal, his brand, his mark of ownership and authenticity upon our lives. Baptism is the sign of the new covenant. And this is what we are celebrating today with those who are to be baptized. They confess that they are going to be following Jesus, that they are not ashamed to call themselves Christians. They are not ashamed to be a part of him and his body, but they want the whole world to know of their commitment. Would the baptism candidates please join me up here in the front row? As I've said, baptism is the sign and the seal 
of the new covenant of grace, the significance of which is attested by, by the Apostle Paul in his letter to the church in Rome, where he told them, Or are you unaware that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. The earliest and simplest statement of Christian belief into which you now come to be baptized is the Apostles' Creed, which reads as follows. I would encourage you to read along with me. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell, the third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Church of Jesus Christ, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. This is the faith into which these candidates will be baptized today. But there's more to it than just reciting a, a creed or a confession. They have their own personal testimony of what God has done in their lives and, and who they are in Christ. So I would invite our first candidate, Brooke, to come up and speak for herself. This is a celebration. This is a... This is a cause to rejoice, for people have declared their commitment to Christ and their commitment to, to his body and his law and his will. And we want to celebrate and rejoice with them this morning. May we celebrate again. Give them a round of applause. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we praise you for the new life that you give us. God, that in you we are not we are not bound by sin, but God, in you we have new life. God, I pray for these, for these baptism candidates. God, I, I pray that they would continue in you. God, that they would proclaim daily their devotion to you and receive in themselves the promises that you have given. God, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your love and for the life that you give us. And God, may we May we rejoice in your Holy Spirit and in the salvation that comes through the blood and the power of Jesus Christ. Go with us this week and all the days of our lives, God, that we may rejoice in you, never forgetting the covenant that you have made with us. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.